The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome to 2018. Uh, to all the listeners out there, this is Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. We're glad to be with you today. We had, I would say it was kind of a boring year, guys, uh, last year. We had good, re- great returns in the broad U.S. market and around the globe, and uh, not a lot of fluctuation, as they call it. Some people call it risk. I call it fluctuation. Well, today in the studio, I have Dr. Fred Gertz. I made a mistake, Dr. <laughs> Fred. Last, I didn't tell you about our kind of the, the show that we shuffled around and we yeah. shuffled a couple of times. Yeah, we both made a mistake. I was here on the 26th. And was, uh, <laughs> we were both ready, so just anyway, not together. Yeah, I guess most of us would uh, uh, welcome another boring year like this, in the, like last year in the stock market. Oh, yeah, and one of the things is, you know, this recency bias thing that humans uh, tend to suffer with. We tend to extrapolate what's been happening recently into the next period of time. It's usually not a good idea, but one never knows. Yeah, there's a... Interesting thing, now that I'm getting off no, topic okay. a little bit, but uh, uh, in the past, uh, the argument for hedge funds and absolute return funds is that you don't make all the upside, but you protect yourself against downside. Now, uh, pension funds have been into this for five or ten years, uh, performing much worse than the uh, overall market, and now they're getting out of it. It's just at a time when they might actually needed in the future, so it shows that not just individual <laughs> investors are susceptible to these kind of things. Uh, uh, no question, Fred. I've I've read a number of articles towards the end of the year about, you know, all the, it was really, it was Swenson uh, that was at Yale, right? Yeah, that, uh, yeah. He was the head of their multi-billion dollar pension and endowment, uh, may, endowment fund. And of course, he had an extraordinary track record <laughs> run, running basically a hedge fund strategy, right. which is just using a lot of alternative investments. And of course, like, all humans, even people on endowments and pension boards, you know, they, they notice it and they feel like, hey, how, we're missing something. How come they're, yeah. And that we're missing something. And then you're right about uh, in that window of five to 10 years ago, uh, all across the board almost, or yeah. seemingly, uh, went to these alternative strategies and hedge fund strategies. Now we start looking back at the track records over the last five years or so. It's really kind of deplorable. Yeah, it's, famous, it's, it's a big famous, mistake. Yeah, famous uh, Buffett bet. And, yeah, yeah, and then we, you, why don't you tell people, kind of bring it up, because now that it's yeah. official. Well, a long time ago, there was an economist here in uh, Illinois named Julian Simon who bet someone about resource usage, and he was a conservative, and it turned out that resources didn't disappear, and he won the bet. And a uh, more recent bet was that uh, Warren Buffett said, uh, I can invest in the index and do better than the smartest guys in the world who are running hedge funds and he made a bet with someone and that to prove it in the long run but it certainly proved the last 10 years that yeah so uh, he, hedge funds wasn't the place to be so he made a, a bet that said basically i can go buy the vanguard index 500 no-brainer uh stock index u- mutual fund i can capture the complete returns of the broad u.s market particularly large companies in the u.s and i'll bet a million dollars is called the million dollar bet and uh, there was a fellow i don't remember his name it, you know nobody will now uh, basically set up he his company is a kind of a, a fund of the smartest hedge fund runners so it's a fund of funds and he picked five of them and all five of them underperformed that mm-hmm. no-brainer stock index fund by a pretty good margin collectively yeah. 
And, and of course, yeah, the their argument would be that uh, you buy fire insurance, you don't always have a fire. But the problem now is you buy fire insurance, you haven't had a fire, and you get rid of fire insurance, and there yeah. may be a, a fire in the I, I think it's another case where it's always good to ask, compared to what, Yeah. how much does it cost, and what evidence do you yeah, have? Yeah, and the other thing now, which uh, uh, I noted, was that uh, uh, these uh, appear almost uh, every week or two, but... Uh, this year is actually the time for active management. After all these years of passive management being active, the uh, losers who are the active managers are saying, well, now the next time we're going to get it right and we're going to beat the market. So uh, You're right. there's, there's always... It, you uh, know, we, uh, we are seeing that once again. Uh, of course, you know, as they get trounced year in and year out and over whatever period you want. And I try to explain to people that mathematically, people that invest in index funds in the aggregate have to do better than people yeah. that have professionally managed, in other words, stock pickers, that are saying, look, we can do better than that no-brainer index fund, pay us gobs and gobs of fees, and we'll perform when it's really, you know, when it, sometimes it's, we'll perform when the market's going down, This, but overall they have a message of, and by the way, uh, people are onto it, and this is why Vanguard now is the biggest, by, yeah, by a, a large margin, $6 trillion firm. The fund outflows out of actively or professionally managed mutual funds. Another year of just draining those mutual funds. But mathematically, that has to be the condition. Yeah, and there's so a, there's never a stock picker's market. Right, there's right? A, a, a saying about socialism, the next time we'll get it right. And, and <laughs> the same way with active management, uh, next time we'll, we'll get it right. The good news is, uh, out of pain, people no. are uh, finding out that you know what, we've been misled. Uh, they're actually, you know, when we actually, the compared to what, compared to index funds, they're not making yeah. it. Yeah, the only- At what cost? Uh, five to 20 times the cost of an index fund. And what evidence do they have? They don't have any. Yeah, the only possible uh, winner is if uh, they put a lot of money in cash, we have a downturn, but you're, you're paying a, a price bet over the years. And that tends to be a drag. Yeah. And this is not to say, is it, Fred, that somebody isn't going to do better or uh, some people are going to outperform the market. It's just that ahead of time, the difficulty or the impossibility is identifying those superior managers. Ahead yeah, of if, time. The, uh, if the uh, active management uh, uh, people provided their services free, you'd expect on average the active management to be the same as passive, sure. but you have a lot much more variation, some doing well, some doing poorly. But when you add the, the cost of running an active management operation, it, it's a very big hurdle to overcome, and it can't be overcome by the same uh, manager year after year after year. Well, I've enjoyed personally, and maybe it's a, a sense of vindication. Uh, in 1990, uh, I determined early in my career that it just didn't make sense to play that game, to try to hire professional managers at much higher cost uh, to play that game, and I went 100% what's called passive, but that just says, look, we're out of that game of trying to pick the smart people. We're actually just gonna settle in and earn the returns of these broad asset classes very inexpensively. And there's certainly the world has moved my way in that regard, and it's increasing at an increasing rate. So I was just fortunate enough to pick up on this notion. It seemed so sensible to me in 1990. Uh, I'm kind of a math person, so once I started thinking about that arithmetic of active management that Bill Sharp, the Nobel Prize winner, wrote about, it basically just highlighted, look, it's a loser's game. Get out of it. Stop playing the game. And I did. So that's been rewarding. Well, I'm here with also with certified financial planner professional David Rudy. David, good morning. Good morning. David works with me at Rudy Wealth Management, as does Ryan Repko, who's a financial advisor with Rudy Wealth Management. Ryan, glad you could join us. 
Thank you. Good morning. Again, this is Paul Rudy's On The Money Radio Show. Comes to you the second and fourth Tuesday of each month on WDWS.com at 10 a.m. You can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. It's important to recognize the past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. So... Uh, anyway, we talked a little bit about two, uh, 2017. Fred, what I always, you know, we, we missed you last time, but maybe in some ways it's kind of a rerun. Uh, I kind of get updated, uh, pretty much get updated data. And when I look at the big picture data, it basically continues to mostly point to positive growth. It suggests to me at least, you, we never know, but a recession is unlikely. Some of the things I look at, to gauge that is typically a bond market will go what's called have an inv- inverted yield curve. Historically speaking, it happens before recessions. And that just means the, the interest rate on two-year treasuries is higher than the interest rate on 10-year treasuries. That's not the normal condition. And it's at least a year once we do get that inversion, which we do not have uh, that condition. And so that leads me to believe that maybe this current economic expansion lasts well into late 2018. I look at uh, the historical kind of trend of um, of unemployment claims. The last six months, you know, we're at kind of record conditions. Uh, we have basically had a new 40-year low. That certainly doesn't argue for a recession camp. Retail sales, new all-time high in November. Uh, most of employment has been driven by full-time jobs. Employment growth, though, is I noticed one of the things is it's decelerating a bit, but uh, and that's always a little bit of an early warning sign. But overall, it's still strong. And I saw uh, someone I, I I do have a Twitter account at Paul Rudy, but I noticed in a tweet that someone said 87 consecutive months of jobs growth is by far the longest streak in history. I didn't verify that, uh, but the data looked like it was credible. Um, and compensation, employees are earning more money, 2.5% year over year in real earnings. Again, uh, housing, home sales grow to, uh, grew to grew 27% year over year, if you can imagine that, in November, the highest level in the past 10 years. And I noticed that in the past 50 years, more than a year has lapsed between the expansion high print new home sales and the start of the next recession. So we're now getting these high prints in home sales so manufacturing strong, uh, inflation, uh, even in the in the strength, though it's not runaway runaway strength. In fact, we just continue to have this economy that's growing well below uh, historical trend lines. But when we look at inflation, the Federal Reserve prefers to use the prefer uh, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, which is the P- PCE to measure inflation, and the last measures were 1.8 percent for core inflation and one and a half percent year over year for just regular measure of inflation. So seems like the past five years, uh, it seems like we're still in that condition. Growth is positive in the range of two to 3% and lower than prior periods, periods of uh, economic expansion. Yeah, and we've uh, overcome I'm, a lot of hurdles. It's been, uh, again, uh, surprising, but the recession ended back in the summer of 2009, so we're into almost nine years of recovery or expansion and uh, many of those years didn't seem that great. They were expanding, but we're expanding from a low base. 
but we've overcome a series of hurdles. The first was that it was a jobless recovery. Uh, we were growing a little bit, but uh, there was still high unemployment. The unemployment rate has come down to just about uh, historic lows. And then the next knock was, well, it's a, a wageless uh, recovery. Right. Uh, people are getting jobs, but they're not getting any more uh, income. And now that's starting to uh, tick up as well the last several years. So we have this kind of sweet spot of uh, low inflation, uh, continued economic growth, probably not going to continue above 3%, and also some some wage growth. So it's all uh, pretty good. The, the, the thing that we I think people have to remember, though, is that the uh, stock market is not the same as the economy. To the extent that you and I and everyone else knows this, it may well have been incorporated into asset values. So just because we expect the next year to be good doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have another year like 2017 in terms of uh, stock. So you're saying even if we could guarantee people that we were going to have a pretty good year from an economic standpoint, unemployment standpoint, that wouldn't be the same thing as saying, therefore, the stock market's going to go up robustly or even go up at all. Yeah, and the the argument is that maybe it's gone up the last uh, several months because people know that's coming. And once that's uh, capitalized or built into the values, uh, it, it would presumably stay at that level, but not necessarily uh, increase at the same rate unless some other good things happen in the meantime. In 2009, uh, in the spring, would be a great example, maybe yeah. a counterexample, right. or a, an example from a different way, yeah. out of pessimism and the view that we were not, not going to have uh, any growth at all in the economy. Yeah. And if you were sitting there in 2009 and you knew, and someone could tell you that over the next four years, I can guarantee you that unemployment won't go below 7% and the economy won't grow above 2%, you might naturally say, well, therefore, I don't want to invest in the great companies of America because under that environment, there's no way these companies could do well. And we've seen a tripling of stock prices uh, since that period of time. So now, just so I'm not confused, uh, over one's lifetime, is it fair to say stock prices in general, in a general term, in a broad-based term, is related to the economy. Sure, and, and productivity and economic growth, all those things go together, as are wages. In the short run, wages aren't necessarily linked directly to productivity. Productivity growth may encourage uh, more automation, things of that sort, but uh, over the years, uh, there is a, a strong link between productivity and wage growth. We're going to go to Stan. Stan, welcome to Paul Rees on the Money. Hey. Happy New Year, Stan. Good morning, gentlemen. Happy New Year to you, too. Um, <laughs> we already had Stan's uh, analysis at the end of uh, the tax, tax bill. So. Go ahead, Stan. What? Uh, what? Fred was just commenting that towards the end of the year you gave us your no, analysis. It's toward the end of last hour. Oh, last hour. Oh, okay. I, I wasn't listening. I was preparing for the show. Sorry. Go ahead, Stan. <laughs> okay. Well, let, let me just uh, reiterate something that I said in the last hour. Uh, and uh, then I have a uh, question for you that you guys can riff on a little bit. Uh, the first thing is that uh, if you look at the uh, 2009 versus 2017, the increase in the uh, stock market as a percentage was much higher in 2009 under Obama than it is has been in 2017 under uh under uh, Trump. Well, uh, I don't give either or, one credit. I don't give either one of them credit, frankly. But you're about your statistically, you may very well be right. Yeah, even a very conservative person, if someone said, "Would you take the uh, Obama years uh, uh, for 
several decades into the future in regard to the stock market, everyone would buy right into that. Of course. Uh, uh, but, again, it's coming from the trough to the uh, higher levels. Well, okay. Uh, that's, a, that's a legitimate argument. Well, I don't, I don't think uh, – I think what we're saying, Stan, is we don't disagree with you uh, factually. Uh, I don't assign any credit to the current environment. To the current administration, and I really don't didn't assign much back then to that prior administration. So you're just bringing up, you know, a, st- a st- it's data, it's data. information that yeah. people need to know. Well, yes, but uh, it doesn't that's doesn't not what they're getting. A, <laughs> well, well, that's look. not the information they're getting from corporate media. Well, we're not. I don't think we ever get any decent information out of corporate media these days, at least any that's useful. Well. That's because it's controlled by the one percenters, but now we're getting into politics. <laughs> All right, yeah, we let don't me, want to do that, Stan. You know our rule. Uh, I know that. That's why I'm trying to okay. move on. Okay, go ahead. Uh, my riff is this. Uh, back in 2007, we had a growing um, real estate bubble. Uh, right now, we have another, in my opinion, growing real estate bubble that, in my opinion, this new tax law is going to um, probably put a a much slower growth rate on that uh, bubble because of the cap of $10,000 on uh, deductibility of uh, real estate taxes. Uh, What are, are your thoughts? Are those are, uh, have I missed something? Are those uh, state sensitive so that if you have $10,000 of uh, deductible real estate in Illinois, you can have $10,000 of deductible real estate in Missouri? I don't see it that way. It looks to me like the, the cap is the cap, and it looks like that's going to put a cap on the uh, uh, desire of people to buy uh, vacation homes and, and things like that, and that's going to... Uh, slow down at least the growth in the uh, real estate market. What's your thought? Well, I think okay. you're probably... Uh, we'll go ahead and take that, and then uh, and then we're going to move on. Thanks, Dan. No, I think we'll, you're probably... We'll talk yeah, about yeah. it. Okay. You're Thanks. probably uh, right to a certain extent, but maybe uh, what you think is a bad thing is actually a good thing. First of all, uh, high uh, real estate values, to the extent they are, is not the same thing as a bubble. So right. I don't think... Uh, I don't... Uh, you know, maybe some... You might, you might argue that in some areas... There's a bubble, San Francisco, or, or certain parts. Or prices might go down, but no, oh, sure. a, a bubble is not the same as any time that you have a uh, slightly overvalued stock market and it goes down by 10%. Correct. But anyway, uh, the question, though, about uh, the deductibility of mortgage interest, uh, most economists actually welcome that. Uh, there's a, a strong view that uh, we misallocate our right. investment uh, too much into housing, not enough into other things, and this will – Limit that to a certain extent, so that the, the damage done in the uh, the housing market, uh, the hope is, would be more than made up for in other markets. The other thing is, it's kind of an odd uh, uh, set of complaints that the complainers about the uh, uh, cap on mortgage uh, deductibility and also the uh, 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 limitation on uh, state and local uh, taxes. taxes actually are all things that hurt. Uh, high-income people right. and high-income states. So you have uh, Democrats like Cuomo uh, crying about the fact that uh, high-income people are going to pay a little bit more. Yeah, that seems uh, seems ironic. I, you know, my, I got, I'm 58 years old. Uh, my sense is the Democrats uh, 
you know, I'm not saying right or wrongly, um, want to hit the rich with higher taxation. And now they seem to have shifted saying, wait a minute, we can't pick on these one percenters. Right. Uh, and and that's, that's sort of the common thing about uh, this tax reform is flawed and far from perfect sure. and all kinds of problems. But uh, to argue that it's bad because you pick out a few losers and, and most of the losers are actually high income people is not a very strong uh, argument about that. There, there's other arguments about tax reform, but uh, the fact that uh, some uh, high-income uh, people are going to pay, not be able to deduct as much, uh, is not really a very, a very serious. I don't think that's a big economic shift. Uh, and I, I like you. I don't, I don't see the bubble. Maybe there is, and we'll realize looking back uh, that some people were right. But my experience with wealthy people are, they don't buy that second home based on. It's always a nice, you know, gimme, but it's also subsidizing wealthier people by allowing that. Uh, but as w whether they buy that second home in the Hamptons or not, it probably doesn't get in yeah. the way in any material sense. It probably just shifts things. And a really rich person, uh, they're still going to be hit by the limitation on uh, uh, state and local tax deductibility, but uh, they're not going to be hurt by the lack of mortgage deductibility. All they have to do is to sell some of their assets, well, pay down their mortgage, and they, uh, they basically have the same thing. Well, isn't this really, a it may end up to be a story that proves money goes where it's treated best. In yeah. other words, Lots of times people have options. We've seen articles, credible ar articles about data flows, people flows out of the state of Illinois into yeah. neighboring states. And, uh, you know, this is, I've had a number of clients that have moved to different states just for tax reasons yeah. in the state, state of them. And that was, you know, before the 5%, roughly, uh, income tax. So I think this is going to be a case of, look, it's going to make states focus a little more on, uh, being responsible, spending people's money responsible. If you could imagine that, a state spending people's money responsible, I'll <laughs> yeah. believe that when I see it. And I think it's just, I think for the wealthy people that do move, my sense from talking to clients that have moved to other states, high-income folks, is it's, it's more of a disrespect issue. They feel like they're being disrespected right. as opposed to the amount of tax. Maybe it's always about that. Well, money. especially when you take into account that Illinois also doesn't tax retirement income, so you're uh, losing something you leave. Is that going to change, Fred? I, no, I don't think so. Anytime. Oh, really? <laughs> Why is that? Because uh, there are that, a, lot of, a lot of voters who are okay. retirees. So it just just politically right. speaking. Yeah, the other that looks like low-hanging fruit to me. Yeah, it, it is from a standpoint. From a so, number standpoint. But, you know, I don't have to run for office. So. Got it. And the other thing which uh, I, I should mention is that uh, I'm sort of, in one sense, I'm very fortunate that I didn't appear last time because there are a lot of issues about tax reform, and people have to be very careful about making snap judgments about changing their uh, asset allocation, changing all kinds of things, because uh, we don't really know the full implication. For example, uh, everyone thought that prepaying their uh, their uh, property tax bill would allow them to uh, deduct it in uh, 2017 rather than 2018, and that's not necessarily the case now. It's still up in the air about whether that is or is not uh, deductible. So you have to be careful in these kind of changes not to do things too uh, too quickly. Well, there's always distractions to get us off the big picture. Um, and as we move into 2018, you know, I thought we might segue into this uh, idea of it's not uncommon for people to make New Year's resolutions. And according to uh, National Endowment for Financial Education, nearly seven in 10 adults uh, who plan to make financial New Year's resolution. Of those people making financial resolutions, now none of this surprises me, 40% has a goal, have a goal of setting and following a budget. Imagine that. I guess that would not include uh, our Congress and Senate. 39% getting out of debt. Again, probably doesn't include our politicians. 32% want to establish savings. 
and 31% hope to boost their retirement savings. Fidelity, which is a major financial company, also does a New Year's financial resolution study. It pretty much echoed the same things. For the eighth consecutive year, the top three, three financial resolutions in their uh, survey among Amer- Americans are to save more, pay down debt or pay off debt, and spend less. So question one, Ryan, um, when it comes to setting a budget, it seems sensible to me, trying to spend less, how do people actually go about doing that in a way that might allow them to be successful? Well, <clears throat> we've come a long way. We used to have pen and paper. We used to, we used to have uh, like Excel spreadsheets that we use, but now we have wonderful software tools that are free, like mint.com. Um, if you've ever heard of it, it's, it's a website you can sign up for. You can link accounts to it, so it pulls in data from, for example, your banking institution. So it's kind of an aggregator. It says, okay, if you have a financial account, chances are you can put in your username and password uh, for, that, for the Busey Bank account that you have. And now all of a sudden it's going to show up in the software along with your mortgage and along with your Charles Schwab or Fidelity accounts. Is that what we're talking about, aggregation? Exactly, and it, it allows you to see everything in one concise view. And so the first thing I thought of when I signed up for this a while back was safety and security. Uh, I did some research. It's, it's built and managed by Intuit, which is a major provider of uh, tax softwares, other uh, data tracking storage. So it, it's not a question of, is my data safe? It's, it's now a question of, can this provide value to me in, in a way for me to see trends over time, how I spend my money, and maybe potentially setting goals, which is the ultimate point here, is making sure that you can set a budget and stick to it. Well, and I think sometimes when I think about budgeting, it comes down to a matter of awareness. And tools like this where it's actually, it's not so much you proactively setting a budget saying, I'm going to spend X dollars on this category and X dollars on this category. It's It's tracking what you've done in the past and then gaining some clarity into where your money's going. Because I think if you talk to most people, they'll echo some sort of similar comment to, man, I just don't know where all of it's going. I feel like I make a good amount of money, and then it's gone at the end of the month. Okay, we're going to go to Don. Don, you're on the money. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, yes, good morning, Don. Guys. Uh, yeah, I want to know, uh, how is investing $1.5 trillion into an economy that can grow over $10 trillion is a bad idea. And explain to me how the growth doesn't pay for that. Okay, we'll take that call and uh, just go ahead and listen, Don. I'm gonna, that one's so easy, we're gonna let Dr. Fred Gertz answer okay. it. So well, put that million, million five, uh, trillion five in perspective uh, over a 10 year period. Right. There's uh, no doubt that uh, uh, lower taxes, uh, I guess not, not taking into account the deficit, have a, a stimulative effect and will have some impact on the economy. So that's sort of like the standard supply-side approach, saying that if you have higher rates of return because of lower taxes, people will invest more and not, not avoid taxes as much, things of that sort. So there's not much doubt about that. The more extreme case is that the growth in the economy will be so great that you'll actually not just get more revenue than you otherwise would have, but got more revenue than the tax cut. And that's a very, very unlikely kind of scenario. It hasn't happened very often. It's certainly theoretically possible that uh, lowering tax rates can generate more money, but it uh, seldom happens and certainly not at the rates we're at now. So very few economists believe that the uh, tax cut will be self-financing. It will, it will not be a total loss of a, of a, of a trillion-plus dollars. A couple, couple questions, Fred. Uh, 
might it not unleash between lowering regulations, whether you're for it or against it, combined with, it, you know, speeding up immediate deduction of expenses for businesses? Um, might that not spur a new wave of innovation like we saw in the early 80s and in the 90s? Well, I, I, it might, but I think innovation has a kind of life of its own. This certainly would add to it and make it more more likely, but not by itself. So, again— uh, It won't create it. You know, it may, it may uh, be less of a headwind. Yeah. So there's sort of a—this is a, uh, said a long time ago, but uh, uh, Herb Stein said that there's supply-side economics where you think that— uh, lowering tax rates will encourage economic activity. There's a uh, punk supply side, which the extreme version of that is that lowering rates will create so much activity that you'll actually end up with more money rather than less. And again, uh, very few people believe that at the current tax rates, that will be true. That's not to say it's not a good idea, though. Uh, you might want to cut taxes to stimulate the economy, even though you know you won't recoup all the Here's another, revenue. Here's another question I have. I wish all we had to worry about was an additional $150 billion a year because last month's deficit was more than that. So isn't that a little bit of a laughable to say, you know, it, yes, trillion and a half, it gets your attention. Yeah. But we're talking about $150 billion, and it's real money, don't right. get me wrong. But when last month we had more deficit spending than that, right? Uh, really? And, and things change. I'd really. like to think that our biggest problem is that 10 years from now, that we're only going to have a trillion and a half, so we're going to have 21 and a half trillion dollars. Yeah. It's probably going to be 40. Well, and things change very rapidly. This, again, seems uh, uh, hard to believe now, and it's not that long ago, but in the late 90s, uh, the problem was that we were running uh, 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 systemic uh, surpluses, and people were saying, what's going to happen when we pay off all the national debt, there won't be, uh, the Federal Reserve won't be able to carry out monetary activity and so on. So from about 1999 to 2001, we went from a period of, uh, of uh, surpluses on into the future to a period where we into the, the current kind of deficit spending. situation. So whatever we say right now uh, may not be true a year from now or two years from now. If the economy takes off, uh, the, the money you're talking about will be insignificant if it's not. Then or it, it, even if it doesn't. Yeah. They'll still spend so much beyond that. Right. That it's insignificant, right? As if a trillion and a half is insignificant. But when you see a debt, a, 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 the total debt go from double from ten trillion to twenty in yeah. a short period of years, really, yeah. we have to worry about one hundred and fifty billion dollars a year. I mean, that they they spill that kind of money in yeah. Washington. Yeah. The, the, the problem though is that as we, we always talk about. Uh, Sometime it has to come to an end, and, and sure. the question is when. Gets back to anything yeah. that can't go on forever. Well, right. okay. So Ryan, we've done this budget. We find the tools. We can, you know, there's a, there's Quicken, there's Mint.com aggregators. There's a lot of ways to attack it. Some of them are free. Many of them are free. Suppose now we actually do the right thing. We have this budget. It may, when you're done completing that budget, there may be some, uh, maybe, yeah, it still happens, some excess money left over. So where do we go from there? Um, so where do we go from, do we now say, are we going to attack debt further, or are we going to start saving some of that and investing some of that excess? Well, if you already have debt, like if you're talking about like consumer credit card debt, that's something that, in my opinion, I think a lot of people would agree with me, would say you should really consider highly paying that debt off first before, before you, you start, start saving. Okay. Correct. And, and the reason is simple mathematics. If if you have a credit card that's carrying an interest rate of 18, 19, 20 plus percent, right. which is common, which is very, very common, 
uh, you're not likely going to be able to get that return in the market without investing. Likely, it's highly unlikely. Certainly not going to get it guaranteed like you would if you paid it off. Exactly. And how about that over, uh, that kind of leads me to think of this question. Uh, You've done your budget. You haven't had an emergency fund. Do we fund the emergency fund first or do we attack that 20 plus percent interest rate debt? Uh, My rule of thumb would be attack the debt first. And attack the debt first, again, because you're not going to be able to get the return in the market or in a savings account especially. So you want to reduce debt. And if there is an emergency that you run into down the road while you're paying off that debt, you can always use that line of credit through those credit cards you have to pay an emergency. And treat it like an emergency. It's not extra debt that you're going to carry for five years. Precisely. If I I have to buy a new refrigerator for $800, uh, I don't have the 800 because I've been really knocking down one at a time these really high interest rate debts. Um, we don't want to use it as oh, it's a, it's like an extra, uh, you know, form of income. It's saying, look, I'm gonna, I have to use my credit card to buy that $800 refrigerator, and over the next 12 months, I'm going to pay that. At the end of the year, that thing is paid off. Mm-hmm. That'd be the responsible way to do it. It's for life needs, not for wants. If if you're using your debt that way. So this is not a, a spending spree on a new clothing line. So what's the best way to go about tackling that debt if you're starting out and you realize that we, you know, we really got this chunk of maybe it's student loan debt. Um, what's the most methodical way to go about that? Uh, I would suggest looking at your uh, credit cards if you have several credit cards and paying off the credit card that has the highest percentage interest. And that way, that's the... That's the mathematical side of it, saying what is going to hurt me the most in terms of interest charges, and let's tackle that first and prioritizing it. And then we go to savings. Uh, That's a big goal for a lot of people. And so then we start attacking the saving side. How do we go about that? Uh, So once you've potentially eliminated any budgetary issues with with shortfalls or with uh, credit card interest, Saving money easily would be maybe like in a 401k account, maybe provided through your work. And so that's the no-brainer typically because a number of companies provide 401ks today, and a number of them also usually provide some sort of match, which is a nice way of getting free money by simply investing the amount that they match. But there's always this thing in the back of our mind because it gets beat into us like a drum. But what about retirement? What about retirement? Where does that come in? I mean, how do we satisfy that? concern that nags us between one and three in the morning at the same time as all these other issues. Mm -hmm. It's a delicate balance and it's a dance. So you have to make sure that you've never seen Dave dance, have you? (laughs) No, it's (laughs) not not so delicate, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, it's important to keep all goals uh, in, in your head. So you have to balance the short term needs and the short term downfalls with your long term needs as well. So if you have the ability to, you want to fund your, uh, your long term financial uh, life, by investing in your 401k or whatever account but you may have. How about how do you boost those savings and how do you how do you how do you speed that process up? So you could potentially in your work you could uh, sign up for a increase each year, so a one percent, two percent. So inside your retirement plan, if it's a 401k, uh, wouldn't it make sense? Uh, I always think of trend line inflation, so I'm always stuck on this three percent number. So you get a two or three percent raise historically. Uh, is that where you say, look, I'm not going to indulge myself with that raise. I'm going to treat it like it's a 1% raise from a living expense. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to increase my retirement plan. I've, I've been saving 6%. Now I'm going to 7 And we do this year after year. Is that a sensible approach? Very sensible. And it's 
it's something that you think or you try to you trick your brain to believe I didn't have that extra money this year or this past year before I had that raise. I knew I lived well on the the lifestyle I had. I'm going to take that extra uh, raise and put that into my 401k or whatever funds I may be saving for. What are the things that can allow these this these resolutions to stick? I'm going to budget. I'm going to establish emergency savings. I'm ultimately going to start saving for retirement. How do how do we do something? It seems like everything gets in the way of this process. What is it that, what are some common things people might think about to make them stick? Well, I think you can do the simplest thing and write them down and have some sort of manageable goals. I think where most people go wrong is they set a goal or they say, I'm going to do something. They don't follow through because they had nothing really concrete that they said they were going to do by a certain time. They didn't have any measurements to say at a end of month or end of quarter, I'm going to check in on my progress. And so, and I think automating things as much as possible too, so that you know if you can have your savings withheld from your paycheck, and you don't see a big checking account balance, you're a lot less likely to spend as frivolously. Um, just kind of putting the wind at your back in so that manner. If help. you had an account at Vanguard or Schwab or Fidelity, can you set that up so that you can sweep a hundred dollars a month from your checking account into your Vanguard Total Market Index Fund or your IRA? Yeah, you can definitely do that, um, and and that's what I encourage people to do. But fact of the matter is, nowadays most people have a company retirement plan, and the vast majority of people are not maxing out their four hundred one ks or their retirement plan contributions. So I think the easiest thing to do is maximize that first, and then if you have excess savings beyond that, you open up an account at one of the major custodians, and then you do exactly what you described. So going into kind of wrap things up on that. Um, 2018, um, what are some of the things people you think, what are the common worries going into any year? Uh, I think everybody's worried about the economy. What's the economy going to do? A study from Fidelity came out, um, most people are worried about unexpected expenses. And those are the things that I'm sure keep most people up. What if I have a health care scare? What if I get into a car crash? The, The common everyday things that could derail just random plan. events mm-hmm. uh, that are out of our control many times. Uh, but this all kind of circles back to having the emergency fund and having the resources built up to whatever level makes sense to you. We really kind of need emergency um, when I sit here thinking about it, not only if we lose our job and we might need six months until we find a new job, also just the day-to-day emergencies, uh, the unexpected bill uh, for health care. Those are certainly common. Uh, so we kind of need this. We need to think about that emergency fund very carefully and figure out what that right number is. Uh, well, that's good stuff, uh, Dave. I want to move on to uh, talk about an article that your brother Paul recently wrote. Uh, it was featured on CNBC's website. It still is. Uh, in fact, he was sure to let me know that it was on at the end of the year and it was still on their front page at the beginning of the year. So he's trying to claim that. He was on CNBC's website for two years for that article. I, you know, that's you know, that's Paul. Typical marketing person. <laughs> uh, he discusses uh, diversification on several different uh, levels. He talks about Harry Mark. You know, it's interesting when I read his article. Really, before 1950, and Fred, feel free to weigh in on this. People didn't really kind of know what, if there was any benefit to diversification from a mathematical standpoint. And uh, Harry Markowitz won a a Nobel Prize for Modern Portfolio Theory because he basically quantified and said, look, it makes sense not just to own one or two stocks. There's a real actual calculatable, uh, calculable uh, 
benefit here that we could actually calculate. Um, why was the research so revolutionary? Well, I think when you look back in the day, and, and part of it was for practical purposes, but there it was really common for people to concentrate their portfolio in just a few stocks. And usually it was stocks they were familiar with. And I think intuitively, especially people in the academic world knew that that probably wasn't the best approach. Um, so I think it, it really was awesome that this research came out and basically said, okay, we can basically prove to you that, you know, rather than having one stock in your portfolio or one asset class, what we can do is if we have two assets, even if they have the same expected return, um, if they're not perfectly correlated, which just means they don't sometimes one's eggs they move, and one's eggs. Yeah, exactly. And not even that it has to be that opposite. It could just be as long as it's not a perfect lockstep move in the same direction at all times, you can actually lower the standard deviation of your portfolio, which is a fancy way of saying you can lower how much your portfolio fluctuates and keep that similar or same expected return. And that has a benefit of really increasing returns for the same return if there's less fluctuation, just because of weird math. Compound it actually, growth. Compound growth uh, is a lot. Now, Fred, you were, at the, you were teaching a lot of this stuff uh, kind of when, probably a little past Harry Markowitz, but, but you actually were in the throes of, there hasn't been a lot of new contribution to finance in the last, there's been some. 10 or 20 years, yeah. a lot of the major stuff was happening in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, wasn't it? Right. Uh, I guess I should uh, have a, a, a caveat here. I, I, I teach economics, not finance. So well, I, I understand, I actually, but you, I learned, were, you were down the hallway. I learned most of my stuff uh, in, being involved in pensions and things of that sort. But anyway, the fact is that these things happen uh, now 30, 40, 50 years ago, but it took a long time. Uh, so, for example, SERS is one of the first uh, – Pension funds back in the 80s it went into uh, passive and, and a larger uh, share into equities. And Which that, means they said, wait a minute, these we, fancy not, pants managers that we're paying a lot of money to, to don't. Uh, they don't really seem to be doing the job. They recognize it and move to the direction of saying, no, we can just go out and buy index funds or things like right. that. And that's, but uh, that's been known now for at least uh, 30 years or so, but only the last three or four or five years, we've had this big uh, tsunami uh, you know, change. And again, that's been underestimated. I, I learned something else this week that we've been saying, well, individual investors are leaving the equity market. What they actually were doing was leaving the mutual fund equity market, moving into the exchange-rated fund equity market. And so they were looking at just one part of the equity sure. market. But there's still some cash flow data showing yeah. that you know they're still not exactly in love with what's been going on. Yeah. Um, so I just I so think again, that would have been interesting to be kind of in the throes of academics, yeah. whether it's eco economics, because a lot of it was financial economics. Uh, yeah, actually, two uh, uh, two uh, uh, of the most important economists in the last part of the 20th century who were exactly opposite ends of the spectrum, Paul Samuelson and uh, Milton Friedman, both recommended to the American Economic Association that they go passive with their investment. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, Gene Fama up at uh, University of Chicago, who's won a Nobel Prize, suggested the same thing, but yeah. I don't think they listened to well, it. Well, this was even before Gene was. Well, I understand <laughs> that. That was well ahead. <clears throat> so, David, getting back to that, if we step out of the super mathematical stuff uh, into a more intuitive way to think about diversification, what other reasons are there that people should really diversify perhaps more than they even are at the moment? Well, instead of thinking things in terms of like expected returns and standard, de standard deviations, I like to think, think of it in common sense terms. Why in the world would I tie my financial livelihood 
to one or two companies or one or two asset classes when you just don't need to do that. You, you can have the same expected return and diversify across thousands of companies and multiple asset classes, and then you don't have to worry about any given one. So you don't have to worry about one company doing poorly or going out of business or one asset class doing performing poorly over an extended period of time because you own all the others that are doing well. So I so think it's just common sense. If we think about just because we're retirement planning specialists, that's really kind of our world. Um, is it any more important for people thinking about funding, you know, a rising cost? You know, you think of a retirement of two to three decades of rising cost. Um, where does diversification come in on that? I actually think it is probably a lot more important because you know, when you're younger and you're adding money to it, in some ways that variability can be beneficial, assuming you know, it's not a company that goes completely out of business because you're dollar cost averaging into whatever that position is. So you're buying more shares when it's temporarily down. Now retirees, the exact opposite, they're, they're withdrawing or selling more shares to generate the same amount of income when but the market's down or their portfolio is down. So I think having that diversification, reducing the variability of your portfolio is going to increase the amount you can safely withdraw from your portfolio and hopefully magnify the legacy that you leave when you die. Yeah, so it, you know, diversification is kind of important for everybody in reality. There's no one group that gets extra benefits, but certainly when you're facing three types, when you're not accumulating and you're actually decumulating from your assets to fund three years, a, a three decades of rising uh, requirement, uh, best to be diversified as much as you can. One of the downsides of diversification though, and, and you guys can weigh in on this, is you diversify really for a lifetime plan, right? But in the short run, sometimes diversification makes you feel really stupid or makes you feel like you're really missing out. Um, that's really kind of, if there's a downside to diversification, it kind of comes from an emotional side, doesn't it? Because that's always going to happen from time to time. Yeah, and in fact, I think every single year, there's going to be some asset class that you wish you had put all of your money in. You know, maybe this year you would have wished you put all your money in, in Bitcoin. And in the long run, that's probably not a smart decision, but it would have worked out well this last year. And, you, and there are probably some people out there kicking themselves for not doing that. Sure. Well, and there's that's always just something. this year. In the 90s, it was tech stocks or large, you know, large cap growth stocks. There's always something that's going to be performing a lot better than everything else. And isn't that and one it, of the hard things to deal with as an investor is, you know, is, is that other people, when you see other people getting richer than you through better portfolio performance, it's just a... It just seems to me like seeing your peers, friends, or even perfect strangers making money faster than you can cause strange emotions and reactions. Absolutely, and I think more than anything, it can make you second guess what you're doing. Even if uh, psychologically, like you know that what you're doing is the right approach over long periods of time, emotions can really just, that just adds that seed of doubt. And it's amazing how often people let that influence their investment decisions or cause them to change their portfolio. And, and there's probably a question of, of uh, honesty on the part of the people who are telling you that, too. Yeah. I, sure. I, there are no number, uh, a large number of people who are telling me, well, I put all my money in Apple 10 years ago. I, I suspect if I asked for a financial so statement that was just... subpoena them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the case. And Dan I, Daniel and I talk about that all the time because if you talk to any individual investor who's like a stock picker, which there's still people out there that think they're But really still the majority of uh, assets being managed are managed by professional stock and bond pickers, people that say they can do better. They can only buy the good stuff and avoid the bad stuff. We always laugh because they almost always say the words, I do pretty well for myself. 
And it's like, that's so vague. And I well, always you ever had anybody me, from a casino that didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's just so funny. It's like, really, have you calculated your compound expected return over, you know, an extended period of time and compared that to an appropriate benchmark? Because that's really what you need to be doing. Yeah, but and people and, don't and, do that. And today, uh, we talked about uh, 40 or 50 years ago, it's much easier to diversify now. We're not, uh, you had to diversify by buying a lot of different individual stocks. Now you get a non uh, one-stop kind of diversification with a lot of mutual funds. In, in fact, decades ago, Fred, it would cost just about as cheaply as you could do it. As inexpensive was about 2% a year to have your assets managed. You can do that now for essentially zero. It's not zero, yeah. but it's at Vanguard. If you have enough money, it might be three one-hundredths of a percent. Yeah. <laughs> so this cost drag, uh, there are things today that weren't available 10 years ago, certainly 20 or 30 years ago, right. that allows an average, a simple investor, a modest investor, to invest like the Rockefellers couldn't have done 100 years ago. Right, and there's no particular reason you need to have five or 10 mutual funds in the same asset class. I mean, you, you may, you'd have to have lots of different stocks, but not necessarily lots of different mutual funds. Talk, talk about that a little bit, because I think diversification can be confusing. They say, well, I'm diversified, I have 10 blue chip stock funds. Yep. And what's, what's wrong with that? Well, I think the problem is people look at diversification in a naive fashion in terms of what's the number of line items on my statement? And I don't blame it really people doesn't do anything to know, do with but, the number, but it, it really has to do with what are the underlying securities within those portfolios. And like Dr. Gertz said, if you or maybe it was you, if you have 10, if large, it was smart, it was me. If you have 10 large company funds, you know, you're just owning the same companies in 10 different buckets. What true diversification is, is if you compared maybe a small company fund with that large company fund. And sure, there may be some overlap. That's fine. But that's a different but, asset. But class. you want to yeah. make sure that you're not just buying the same thing in 10 or 12 different buckets. And also the, the other problem, which I think is less problem now, there's something called closet indexing where sure. you, you buy actively managed funds and they actually have a big core that's uh, passive and then they do little things around the edge and you have three or four of those and you're basically paying a lot of money for You uh, just have an index. expensive index fund. Yeah. Yeah, it's, this, this idea of, again, diversification, I think the, <clears throat> this all circles back to, it's obviously it's important to diversify, uh, but as far as anything goes, it still gets back to the vast majority of your lifetime return is going to be determined by one thing, how much money you're, you have invested in the great companies of America and the world, and how much in fixed income, things like bonds and CDs. That's going to drive the majority of your lifetime return. Everything else is commentary. <clears throat> we always need to circle back to that. And if that's the case, um, a modest investor can, if they want to be in stocks and bonds, um, how hard is it to be in something as simple as a Vanguard balanced index? It's a no-brainer. If you want to do a little different allocation, you buy Vanguard total market index fund and you buy a short-term high-quality bond fund or CDs or things like that. Extremely inexpensive. Uh, you don't have to worry at all about whether you're diversified within an asset class or not. It's about as good as it gets. That's not my recommendation. That's just things to talk to your advisor about. Hey, how come I'm not doing this? This appears to be a little bit smarter and a lot le lower cost than what I'm doing. Well, guys, that wraps up our first On The Money radio show. This is Paul Rudy for Paul Rudy's On The Money radio show. Thank you, Dr. Fred Gertz. Thanks. Ryan Repko and David Rudy. We'll be back in two weeks for another On The Money. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On The Money. 
Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.